everyone. It's Noel, Dogwood's communication coordinator. This is the Dogwood Podcast. We bring you stories about BC from BC. In this episode, I'm joined by our communications director, Kai Nagata, to discuss the launch of the Pact for a Green New Deal in Canada and some exciting campaign updates, including Dogwood's work on the Pact for a Green New Deal and the latest development on the corruption inquiry into dirty money laundered in BC. So without further ado, let's do this. Hey, Kai. Hey, Noel. How are you? I'm really good. This has been a crazy week. Why has it been a crazy week? Well, we're recording this on, what day is it? Thursday. Today is Thursday, and we just got the Peter German report about money laundering in Vancouver real estate and the true scale of it. And I was just thinking about its connections to climate and the Green New Deal, because as the housing affordability crisis has accelerated in cities, we have pushed working families farther and farther out into the suburbs, away from transit, and we've actually made our jobs harder on climate because of the unregulated flow of criminal money coming into housing. So I'm just having one of those weeks where it feels like everything is connected and my brain is kind of spinning. But uh, yeah, how about you? I'm doing well. Another exciting thing that's going on with Dogwood is we just launched our fossil fuel subsidies slash climate campaign. That was like 24 hours ago. I've completely forgotten about it. But yeah, um, asking the federal government to count the Trans Mountain Pipeline as a subsidy to industry as they work on their plan to slowly uh, phase out those subsidies. And we'll talk about the problems with that and the bad faith being shown by the federal government. But yeah, and then Monday, going back even uh, like two days before that, which feels like an eternity, um, the national coalition for a green new deal launched in canada and dogwood was proud to endorse and support that call and uh, we've seen more than a hundred town halls spring up across canada uh, where citizens are planning to hammer out what would go into this ambitious plan to basically save the world reduce emissions and um, address a lot of the underlying inequalities in canada at the same time so yeah pretty big week yeah also create jobs yeah a million jobs um address UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, you know, a just transition grounded in reconciliation with Indigenous people that creates a whole bunch of jobs and slashes emissions. It's all very exciting. And the question now is how to do it in uh, the short 10 or 11 year time span that we have and how to marshal um, public opinion quickly enough behind key political tipping points like the uh, election that we've got coming up this year. And the term New Deal, at least, is not a new one for most of us. Uh, And I am wondering, what are the parallels between post-World War II, North America, and the moment that we're in right now in terms of climate change? Yeah, so there's lots to unpack there. um, So the Canadian um, Alliance or Coalition for a Green New Deal has chosen to use the name and the branding that's already been rolled out in the United in the United States by uh, the Sunrise Movement and by popular politicians like Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. So the original New Deal was introduced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a response to the Great Depression in the United States. And it was a reorientation of the entire U.S. economy to fight uh, poverty and put people back to work 
over a very short time frame, and it involved basically a massive injection of federal funds. It was a, a federal jobs program that uh, uh, cost, I think, over $3 billion uh, at the time and created about 35,000 different projects around the continental United States that put all these unemployed folks back to work after capitalism basically uh, shit the bed and um, the stock market collapsed in 1929. And so uh, they literally went to work rehabilitating the Dust Bowl and trying to heal the land, uh, put people back to work in positions that offered dignified pay that allowed them to feed their families. And, uh, you know, that really um, brought the United States out of uh, the tailspin of the Great Depression. We are facing a similar uh, challenge in terms of the scale and the potential impact, except now it's global. Um, and so folks in the U.S. have been calling for a Green New Deal to similarly uh, use a whole bunch of uh, federal funds and resources to marshal a sort of war-scale response to the biggest crisis that we face today, which is the climate crisis and the speed with which... Uh, uh, carbon emissions are rising around the world. So that's the parallel. That's the context for the U.S. Obviously, Canada shares a language and a lot of culture with the U.S. and Canadian progressives follow a lot of American politics. Um, and so the Green New Deal idea, unsurprisingly, is resonant with folks on this side of the border. And when, um, you know, the Toronto Star put out a poll a few weeks ago showing like up to 66% support in Canada for a Green New Deal, I think the organizers here in Canada gave up trying to find a a different brand and just decided to go along with uh, the existing idea that was already out there thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and a lot of the candidates in the U.S. Democratic primaries. Uh, what are politicians in Canada saying about the Green New Deal? It's interesting. We've seen a little bit of pickup so far, uh, mostly from Greens and New Democrats, people who are excited about um, what is happening in the Democratic Party in the States. Uh, we saw an MP from Ontario tweet a photo of herself with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week talking about uh, getting together and planning for a Green New Deal in Canada. And that MP happens to represent auto workers in Oshawa who are facing the imminent uh, closure of most of the GM plant that employs, you know, uh, directly or by extension, about 25,000 people in the Oshawa region. And they're saying, you know, why can't we build electric buses and postal delivery vans and trucks? Why can't we become a manufacturing hub for electric vehicles um, that would actually revitalize the auto making sector in southern Ontario and help reduce emissions? That's the kind of program or policy piece that workers are starting to talk about. And so far, pretty tepid uh response from politicians, but it looks like the local MP in Oshawa is starting to pay attention. We saw an MP in Revelstoke applauding uh, young people who, who walked out of class demanding a safe climate future last Friday, talking about uh, a Green New Deal. And we've seen some Green candidates and NDP candidates who are running in the next election starting to use this vocabulary. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's just restricted to those parties. I noticed that the poll commissioned um, for the Toronto Star by um, uh, a group called uh, North 99. Uh, you know, they 
they were the ones who, who were testing the Green New Deal language, and they have a lot of uh, liberal connections. Uh, Abacus polling as well has been asking about a Green New Deal, and I think that uh, you know these guys have lots of connections to the Liberal Party, and there's a battle happening right now within the PMO, within the Liberal Party, about whether to um, embrace this language and this policy direction, because it really seems to be the way that a lot of Canadians are headed. There's massive concern all of a sudden around climate and the federal government's response. We're seeing it pop up as the number one voting issue for people looking at the next election, which is the first time that's ever happened in my lifetime. And so I think that even uh, within the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, you know, come October, politicians across the political spectrum are going to have to have a response for what they're going to do to tackle the climate emergency. And I think that the phrase Green New Deal is going to become pretty unavoidable for anybody who's... uh, who's seeking public office in Canada, they're going to have to come up with a stance, whether it's in favor or opposed. And is there anything you can envision that might stand in the way of a Green New Deal? Yeah, so we, um, funny timing, we got a report uh, last Friday, like just uh, the last working day before the uh, launch of the Green New Deal, this IMF report, the International Monetary Fund, put out new estimates on fossil fuel subsidies around the world. And we dug into that report. We looked at their estimates for Canada, and it's absolutely shocking. They're talking about $58 billion per year in Canada that goes to propping up the oil and gas industry, basically inflating their profits or shielding them from the true cost of doing business. Um, And that takes a variety of forms, but... That can come uh, in the form of drill credits and tax credits, uh, royalty deferrals, infrastructure that the government builds for fracking pads or for oil pipelines. It can come in the form of cheap power, basically subsidized energy uh, for oil and gas operations. It can come in the form of other infrastructure like uh, rail and highways that are um, that are primarily used by private companies uh, to access uh, resources or move products. And, uh, you know, when you add all of this up together, it's a major drag. It's a major drag on the economy, and it's a major drag on uh, any attempt to revamp our economy and our, our technology because it's not a level playing field. Renewables can't compete when there's $58 billion a year in government handouts going to coal, oil, and gas companies. And so that's why we've launched our call this week on Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, to start counting some of these things as subsidies, starting with pipelines. If you're going to buy a pipeline for industry and you're going to build them a pipeline with public money, that is a subsidy to oil and gas. That allows for the expansion of oil sands production and it allows for the export of crude bitumen that would not be possible without government intervention. So that is a direct government subsidy, and it needs to be counted as such, because we need to be honest when we look at the benefits uh, and the costs of oil and gas development, what those numbers are on both sides of the ledger. And the, the really like the thing that stuck out for me, that stuck in my brain from this week's um, numbers from the IMF report, is that even if you look at the most generous estimates by the oil industry of how much revenue they pay to all levels of government, including both royalties and taxes and other indirect revenue, they say $19 billion a year. And they're proud of it. $19 billion a year to all levels of government. Well, we are paying triple that to keep them in business. The public 
is spending triple what it gets back from oil and gas companies in order to keep them profitable and to keep them expanding and to keep their shareholders happy. And I think when you put it in those terms, it becomes a really easy economic decision. And that's why the International Monetary Fund is starting to to take this seriously is because not only would you save you know deaths on air pollution and uh, potentially vehicle accidents, but if you stopped subsidizing oil and gas companies, it would boost your country's GDP. Canada would have more government revenue to work with, more uh, GDP growth if we stopped these inefficient handouts to oil and gas corporations. And so it's really becoming uh, almost like, I think of them as vampires, like they're sucking the life out of the country and out of the economy. They're parasites. And we are the host and we are basically paying our taxes every year so that uh, oil companies whose shareholders are mostly not in Canada uh, can book record profits year after year. And that, I think, is the major obstacle to a Green New Deal. It's the major obstacle to the uh, proliferation of renewable energy in Canada. And I think that's uh, something we have to tackle head on. We cannot pretend that we are going to be able to uh, rebuild the Canadian economy around renewable energy if we are bleeding $58 billion a year to the oil and gas industry. So that's what we are tackling. And the first step that Dogwood has launched is an action uh, calling on Catherine McKenna to start counting the Trans Mountain Pipeline as a fossil fuel subsidy. And we'll go from there. So we have this action aimed at McKenna trying to account for fossil fuel subsidies that they are, the government isn't accounting for. And we have our no tankers campaign that already exists. And I'm wondering where is the relationship between those two things that we're, that we're working on? Well, Trudeau made it really simple when he bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline. You know, when this became an issue of, of uh, corporate welfare or public subsidies is when the private sector abandoned this oil sands expansion project and left it to government to get the thing built. So when Kinder Morgan walked away from the Trans Mountain Pipeline and said, you know what, our investors are no longer willing to take the risk, Trudeau stepped in and said, well, the public can take unlimited risk. We can spend unlimited money on this. We're not deterred by market signals that private corporations have to take into account. We're not deterred by losing money, which, by the way, the Trans Mountain Pipeline does every month. The interest payments on the loan uh, to buy Trans Mountain are so large that they dwarf the amount of revenue collected from tolls. So if you add up the depreciation and the interest payments, and you put that against the revenue that Trans Mountain collects from oil companies to ship oil, it's no wonder that Kinder Morgan wanted to get rid of it. It's a 65, 66-year-old asset that leaks regularly and is in dire need of repair all up and down the length of the pipeline, and it is currently losing money every month. So Trudeau says, hey, no problem. You know, The public can absorb unlimited risk. And that is when I think he really took this from like a, uh, an issue of us fighting one individual project that we think presents an unacceptable risk to coastal BC, and it turned into an issue for taxpayers across the country. It's a philosophical question. Are we happy with our public money, our income taxes, going to oil and gas companies whose shareholders are mostly not even in Canada? 
are we willing to continue subsidizing this industry with rock bottom royalties and free power and free infrastructure so that they can export crude oil to refineries in other countries? And I think for the majority of Canadians, the answer is no. And so we are trying to look at this debate with fresh eyes. It's not about one pipeline anymore. It's about the federal government's whole philosophical approach to fighting climate change. And they cannot say out of one side of their mouth that they are taking meaningful climate action because they're bringing in a uh, measly, you know, uh, little carbon tax and at the same time pump billions of dollars into expanding oil and gas production. Those two facts are just impossible to reconcile and they have to choose between now and October which path they're going to take. So, yeah, I think this went from being just a Kinder Morgan issue or, a, or an oil tanker issue on the West Coast to really a question about the, the government's priorities across the country. And how does this action around fossil fuel subsidies fall in line with Dogwood's vision of everyday British Columbians reclaiming their power over our democracy? Well, when you look at where the revenues come from uh, to run a government, more than 50% comes from income taxes. It comes from individuals. So we are all, uh, whether we like it or not, if you pay sales tax or income tax, um, if you pay uh, EI premiums at work, you are bankrolling the federal government and the projects that it chooses to undertake. And so right now, we don't have a lot of control over that. We hand money over to the government and they uh, give it to oil companies. And so, you know, unless uh, those politicians are brought to their senses and there are serious political consequences, consequences at the ballot box for this kind of misappropriation of uh, public money, uh, they're going to keep doing it. So that's uh, that's the reality. And I think that um, if we had some measure of control over where that money went through our elected lawmakers, we could choose to put it into projects that would both create good jobs and reduce emissions. And the only entity that is big enough and powerful enough to achieve the scale of change that we need at this moment in history is government. Markets are not going to do it on their own. And if there was going to be a, a market response uh, to the climate crisis that was big enough to, um, to solve the, the, the scale of the emissions that we need to lock underground, uh, I think we would have heard of it by now. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some powerful forces in the world. Money and markets are one of them. You know, militaries are also powerful. I guess you could imagine a military dictatorship that was like super anti-carbon emissions, bombing people who want to use fossil fuels, but that doesn't seem like a very uh, just transition. So the only force in the world um, that is, happens to be um, controlled by citizens and which has the resources and the, uh, and the authority to uh, remake an economy in the time frame that we are talking about is the federal government. And so we need to be electing representatives who understand the scale of the challenge that we face and who are prepared to use the levers of government for good, for common survival and not for the profits of oil companies. So I think that this is really the culmination of a lot of the work we've done around political accountability, voter engagement, voter participation. Um, and we are now in a situation where, you know, we, we have a responsibility 
to uh, elect candidates and, and lawmakers who are going to take this crisis seriously. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see how this shapes the conversation in the federal election. There's some exciting folks that are putting their names forward who really seem to uh, have a sense of the urgency on the climate emergency that, that many of us feel. And I think that voters are, for the first time in my lifetime, you know, seeing the connections and making this a really um, front of mind issue as we head towards the election. And I think it's gonna become a competition between political parties uh, over who is proposing concrete policies to cut emissions fast enough and deep enough uh, to match the scale of the crisis. And to do so in a way that leaves nobody behind, that respects indigenous rights, and that um, helps to narrow some of the, the gap in wealth, the inequality that is fueled and contributed to uh, this climate crisis as, uh, as profits are privatized and risks are, uh, are offloaded onto the public. And let's say I want to go ahead and send a letter to Minister McKenna letting them know I don't stand for my tax dollars going to uh, dying, a dying industry and dying projects. Um, what can I do? How can I go about doing that? We've, uh, we've posted the link on um, Dogwood's website and on our uh, social media channels. We can put it in the notes to this, uh, to this uh, mini podcast as well. Um, we haven't got a flashy campaign slogan yet. We haven't figured out like the perfect hashtag or, you know, like when we wanted to go after uh, corporate donations in BC politics, we came up with the hashtag ban big money and it was like banbigmoney.ca, ban big money. People started saying ban big money. The politicians all used that uh, phrase and it became a really easy shorthand for talking about corporate and union donations in politics. Um, we haven't yet figured out exactly what that, uh, that pithy little slogan is going to be. So if you have ideas, if you're listening and uh, you want to send us any, any thoughts on what the, the slogan or the, uh, the website or the hashtag should be for this campaign, uh, let us know. Um, you know, until then, we're just going to continue talking about public money to oil and gas companies. And that is what we are trying to stop. And that is what um, the fight against Trans Mountain has become. So uh, yeah, if we can, if we can organize enough people who understand that the oil industry cannot continue without public money, once we realize that the oil industry is both the biggest obstacle to the just and sustainable world that we want to live in and that we are funding it with public money, um, I think that there will be real pressure on politicians to to show what they are going to do to fix this and where they would put that money instead. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. Yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to... Um, to uh, vent. It's been uh, a wild week and I feel like my, my head is still spinning, but uh, lots of exciting ideas um, so far from Dogwood supporters and volunteers. And I look forward to seeing the momentum that we're able to build over the rest of the summer. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you're excited as much as we are about Dogwood's new action encouraging the government to include the purchase of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and what it considers a subsidy and about getting public money out of the fossil fuel industry with hopes of investing more money into projects that reduce carbon emissions and benefit all Canadians. If you're interested in sending Minister McKenna a letter, I'll include that information and more in the show notes. Until next time.